Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Asadagamaya Tamaso Homaham Gamaya Ritur Mam Hamritam Gamaya Avir Havir Maidhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Tenamaham Paha Hinithyam Om beat us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality, just through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the practice of contentment. And we can start by remembering the fundamental teaching of this Vedanta philosophy, and that is that you are a divine, immortal soul. You are not the flesh and blood body which is born, grows old, and dies, some kind of carbon-based life form. You are not the mind with its waves of thought and feeling. You're not the role that you play in the melodrama of life. And, uh, you know, sometimes they say that patients are kind of a rare, a true amnesia, but a real amnesic patient can read his own resume. They give him his own his own life history. He doesn't recognize it. Well, that's irrelevant. But the point is, uh, in your true nature, you are you're not that role that you play on the on the stage of life. You're not the person that you think yourself to be. The person is just a persona. It's a megaphonic mask that you wear in order to relate to the outside world. And uh, in your true nature, you are a divine spirit soul. In your true self, your true self is the the Atman. Sanskrit is called the Atman. The Atman is your true self, yourself with a capital S. And sometimes we make distinction between the small self, the small, small s, and the capital self with the capital S. And we think the first, the, the first one is bad, the second one is okay, but really there's only one self. That's yourself. And in your true nature, you are defined. That is, you are a conscious spirit being. Your nature is pure consciousness. In Sanskrit, it's called satchirananda. It's called Sat Chit Ananda. That means existence, consciousness, and bliss. The three are all the same. Exist being 
is consciousness, that is his purest consciousness, not self-consciousness. Being equals consciousness equals joy and bliss. That's, the, that's like the ultimate equation. And uh, in your true self, you are of the nature, you are the Atman. That is, you are of the nature of pure consciousness. Consciousness is not physical. It's metaphysical. Consciousness is not psychological. It's transpersonal, it's parapsychological. In your true nature, that is, as a divine immortal soul, you are an unbounded, infinite being. Spirit, that is, spirit, spirit means yourself. What it means, when we talk about being spiritual, that means to becoming more like yourself, becoming more identified with your true self, because you are a divine spiritual consciousness. Spirit is, by definition, unlimited. It's infinite. And because there can't be two beings who are infinite, there's only one being. And that is your true self. There's really only one reality. There's really, in Sanskrit, the word is ekam evadvatiyam, technical term. One, they're not content with just saying it's one. They're going to have to say one only without a second. That's the ultimate reality. And the teaching of the Vedanta philosophy is thou art that. That is identical with your true nature. Everything is contained in the one. There's nothing outside of the one and pure consciousness. It encompasses everything in the universe. And because everything is contained within that being, that is within yourself, because you contain everything within you, you are omnipotent. You contain all knowledge. You are omniscient. You are unlimited and infinite. You are omnipresent. You are one with everything. Everything is contained within you. And there's nothing that's left out. There's nothing wanting. There's nothing lacking. And as a result, your natural being is filled with infinite joy and happiness. Remember the equation, being, consciousness, bliss, joy, happiness. And so that's the teaching of the Vedanta philosophy. You're already perfect. And, uh, well, you can say that sounds good, but, uh, you know, I sometimes I don't feel like I'm perfect. Sounds, I don't feel like I'm infinite or omnipotent and divine and immortal being. Those are adjectives that apply to that invisible man upstairs, maybe, but not to myself. And in fact, in our own walking around psychology, we feel very limited. We feel sometimes very small and unhappy, and we feel maybe like a poor, helpless, lost, miserable sinner, <laughs> possible. 
This is because we're alienated from ourselves. We're distanced from ourselves. We're strangers to ourselves. In the language of the Vedanta philosophy, we're suffering from a sort of a metaphysical amnesia. We've forgotten our true nature. And we've identified as infinite, divine, immortal, omniscient, omnipresent beings. Somehow we have limited ourselves to our small human personality, as a result of which we suffer in life after life. And this is the tragedy of human life. The positive side, the optimistic side, is, is that by the basic fundamental law of our own being, we are struggling consciously day and night to regain our true nature. And that's the fundamental law of nature. Maybe uh, you won't read about it in books on, on, on physics, because all the, all the laws of physics kind of presuppose this fundamental philosophical principle that everything struggles to be what it is. You struggle to find and to regain our true nature. At first, we look for peace and satisfaction and for fulfillment for that which we seek for ourselves in reflection everywhere in the world. So the world is just, we see ourselves in reflection everywhere in this house of mirrors. And so we pursue ourselves indirectly. And we look for ourselves outside of ourselves. And we seek for fulfillment uh, somewhere down the road, somewhere in the future, somewhere distanced from ourselves. But in the end, in the long run, we discover and realize that what we seek is within ourselves. And it is here and now. And that we can be who we really are. Well, sometimes that takes a long time for us to come around full circle, to become older and wiser, and to find contentment within. Once upon a time, there in old Japan, I'm going to be telling some Buddhist stories this morning, okay? Once upon a time in old Japan, there was a man who, with the tools of his trade, the uh, hammer, the chisel, and the axe, he used to hew stones out of rock. He was a stone cutter. And he would work from dawn till dusk every day in the hot sun, cutting, chiseling stone. But he was not a happy man. He was uh, weary with life, and he was not content. And one day, as he worked during the heat of the sun, he sat down just for a moment to take a rest, and he thought to himself, you know, I wish, I wish that I was a rich man, sitting on a silk cushion with a big, tall, glass of water. That's what he thought to himself. And that very moment, lo and behold, an angel descended from on high 
and appeared before him and said, you are what you thought. And suddenly the man looked down. He, saw, he was sitting on a silk cushion. He looked in there, he's holding a big glass of cool water in his hand. And he was so happy and he was so, felt so good. Took a glass of the water, rested there on that cushion until he saw coming down the road there was a long train of people. The king was passing by. And the king was riding in a gold and silver carriage with these retainers, 20 horses in front, 20 behind, under a silk parasol. And he sat there and he watched the king go by in all of his pomp and the circumstance. And he thought to himself, wow, that is, that, that's how wonderful that would be if I could just be a king like that. And uh, at that very moment, an angel appeared before him and said, well, you are what you thought. And he looked down and sure enough, there he was. He was riding in a carriage and there's horses before and horses behind, silk parasol overhead. And he was like a king riding through the streets of that city. But as he rode along, he felt the sun was beating down upon him, hurting his eyes. He felt very hot. He thought, how powerful. Great, look at there, the sun. How infinitely more powerful he is than me. Uh, you know, if I was the sun shining in the sky, how glorious that would be. I wish that I was the sun. And, uh, well, at that very moment, an angel descended from heaven, appeared before him, and said, you are what you thought. And sure enough, he became the sun. And there he was, up in the sky, and he was shining with all his glory. And he felt so vast and so powerful. And, well, that was until the, uh, he looked down, saw a big rain cloud. It kind of floated between him and the earth. And however much he was shining, he couldn't illumine anything. He was just blocked out by that cloud. And uh, he thought, even that cloud is more powerful and greater than myself. See, I think I, I'm saying of the sun, I wish, I really wish that I was that rain cloud. And, well, an angel descended from heaven, at that very moment descended from heaven, appeared before him and said, you are what you thought, and he became that rain cloud, filled with, maybe you're going to rain, and he rained, and he rained, and he rained, oh, they looked down, yes, everything is running with water, all flooding with water everywhere, and uh, he felt very happy to be that rain cloud until as he looked a little bit closer down there, way down on the earth, he saw there was a big rock. The rock was not the water flowing by, the rain but didn't bother. The rock was, stood there, immo immovable. And he thought, that rock is even more powerful than this rain and all these floods. And so thinking, he thought, yes, he thought well, you know, I wish that I was big immovable rock and uh, well an angel came down from heaven that very moment appeared before him and said you are what you thought and he became a great immovable rock and there he stood and he felt very powerful 
and he felt very happy that nothing, nothing could move him, nothing could change him, until a man came along that way, and uh, he was a stone cutter. And with the tools of his trade, the hammer, the chisel, and the axe, he looked at that stone, went over there, and he began to hammer. And he began to chisel out a stone from that rock. And the rock thought to himself, I'm disintegrating under the powers of this man. He said, I, I can't imagine anything greater. He said, I, wanna, I wish that I could become a stone cutter. So, at that very moment, an angel descended from heaven, appeared before him, and said, you are what you thought. And he became a stone cutter. And he hewed stones out of rock, worked all day in the hot sun. And, but now... He was content. And uh, when the rich man and the king passed by that way, he looked at them, but he was remained happy and content. And when the sun shone and the rain fell, he remained happy and content. And so, well, that's our, uh, that's our uh, subject this morning. That is the practice of contentment. Contentment means being content with uh, being happy with what you have. Now we think that we're going to be happy with what we don't have. Contentment means being happy with who you are. Now we think that we will be happy if we can become someone different, something better, something greater if we can enjoy our lives more, if we can fulfill the desires which arise in our mind. That's why we feel a sense of lack. We feel a sense of loss, decider, that means desire, that means just somehow you're, when you're under your lucky star, everything comes to you and you, you're fulfilled. But when you're decider, that means you're away from your lucky star, desires arise in your mind and you feel want you feel a sense of lack, and you feel unhappiness. Yeah, it's unhappy, you're discontent, you're unfulfilled. And naturally we think that we can, if we could just fulfill our desires, that we would become content. Once upon a time in ancient India, there was a king, his name was uh, Yayati. Yayati was a, um, well, his name appears in a history book, so maybe like a pre in prehistoric India, a famous king, and uh, he lived a long, full, and rich life, and uh, filled with enjoyment and the pleasures of being a king. All of his desires were fulfilled. But as he reached old age, he looked within his own mind and heart, and he found that he was still not content. He still was lacking. He wanted more. He wanted still to, he still had a lust for life. And so he uh, asked his sons, he had three sons, and he wanted to arrange if he could change bodies with the, uh, one of the sons. They could do that in ancient times. <laughs> the older, eldest son said, no, no way. Yeah, middle, no way, but the youngest, 
Youngest son, he says, yes, yes, father, I'll change bodies with you. That's all right. And so they sat down, they entered into meditation, they did their mantras and mudras, and they recited their, their, their uh, mantras. And sure enough, the soul of the son left his body and entered into the body of the old king. And the, body, and the soul of the old king entered into the body of the, of the young man. It's called, it's called a doctrine called transmigration of souls. It's an old doctrine. Don't confuse this with reincarnation, totally different. But the soul of the king, the old king, went into the body of the young. And now he was happy. And he started, the, his, he was still the king, and uh, the old king died. And here he, he started another life. And he lived another long life filled with happiness and joy and the pleasures of life. And years passed, time passed, and uh, one day, he looked into the mirror, and he saw that his skin was becoming a little wrinkled. He saw that his hair was becoming gray. And to his great distress, he realized that uh, he was still in his heart. He still had a craving for, happy, for pleasure and enjoyment. And... Uh, at that time, he was inspired. He wrote a famous verse: "Jatu kama kama nam upabhogena shammeti havisha Krishna vartmayavabhuyo eva bivardate." He composed a verse because he realized that all his time, for two lifetimes, he had been satisfying his desires in pursuit of happiness and contentment. But now, after the at the end of the second life, he realized that these desires did not grow less, that is that they only increased just as pouring ghee onto fire. The desire is like a fire that burns within us. And how can we rid ourselves of this burning feeling of want and need? Christian Saint, Saint Augustine, he said there's only two ways. The two things you can do is if you have a fire that's lit, the flames are licking, they want to eat. <laughs> They're hungry to eat something. Two things you can do. You can pile on more fuel. That'll satisfy it for a while. Or you can take away some fire. And uh, by the King Yayati, he realized that the, the, the first option was really not, didn't really work. It's just the fire burned more brightly than before. King Yayati, he realized he couldn't find happiness and contentment by following that method. And in fact, the wisdom traditions of all the world teach us that not only can we not find happiness and contentment by fulfilling our desires, but we cannot find contentment in this world at all. This is the world of Maya. This is the world of the, the relative world. And Everything that we seek and everything that we attain in this world will not satisfy our desire for greatness, for what we pursue in our, uh, by our nature. We, we, we seek the, for the absolute. You cannot find the absolute in the relative. 
And that's maya. Somehow we think that we can, in pursuit of the absolute, that means, absolute means what? We're not content with the anything by our nature. Because you're infinite, you can never be content with anything which is finite. That's just uh, the only joy that you can find in life, or whatever gives you happiness in life, is gives you happiness because it makes you feel larger. It makes you feel greater. And the yo true happiness, yo vaibhuma tatsukam nalpe sukamastihi, that means their only true joy and happiness in, in life is in greatness, infinity. You can't find happiness in things which are small. And in the relative world, everything is relatively, relative, <laughs> this relative world, everything is relatively small. The only thing that is infinite is the absolute. In this world, everything is marked by the Buddhists, say, the great three signs of being, all marked by suffering, marked by transience, it's marked by emptiness. And therefore, uh, as we grow older and wiser, we realize that we cannot find that which we seek, which is our true self, which is our own infinite divine immortal soul, we cannot find that it's something we cannot find it outside of ourselves. Once upon a time, there was a bird who perched on a the main mast of an old sailing ship, and there, with the gentle rocking of the ship back in the ship was docked in the harbor, and the gentle rocking of the ship, the little bird, she fell asleep, and while she slept. The ship weighed anchor and sailed out to sea. And when the bird wakened, she looked around and uh, she was surprised and, and disoriented and then became very anxious and very worried because she couldn't see land in any direction. And uh, in this state of discontentment and desperately desiring to find the land where she lived, she set out to fly. So she left the main mast. Now it's, it's about mid-morning. She left the main mast and she began to fly. And she flew towards the west. And as she flew west in a westerly direction, that means let's say the boat was there in Los Angeles. Okay, she's flying, she's flying west. Flies and flies. What's there? What's west? There's water, water, everywhere. She flew and flew, got very tired and realized I have to return, I, I, point of no return. So she turned around, came back, flew back, perched on the main mast of that ship, didn't find land in that direction. And uh, well, early afternoon, she tried again. She flew north. And she flew and flew and the north wind was blowing and it blew and it was getting colder and colder and looked all around, didn't see any land realized there's no land in that direction either. And so she turned around, flew back, barely made it back to the main mast of the ship, perched there on that mast. Night came, she fell asleep. In the morning again, decided that she'd try again. And so left the mast and flew towards the east. And she flew towards the east, the sun rising, became hotter and hotter. Didn't see any land in that direction either. She grew very tired. Well, I must better return. 
turned, returned to the main mast of the ship. And then in the early afternoon, Sati would try again. And so she flew to the south. And she flew and flew, saw water down there, calm, quiet waters, a vast ocean circling, fins of the sharks down there in the water. No land in that direction either. She returned to the ship's mast, perched there, and night fell. And the next morning she woke. And when she woke, she looked up, saw the blue sky overhead, the warm sun shining down upon her. She realized that she didn't have any more plans. There's nowhere else to go. And uh, she looked down, she saw that great sailing ship beneath her. She was perched high up on the main mast, secure and uh, safe. And so she felt, well, became content. Just enjoy the new day and a new journey to a new land. And so in the end, the little bird, she came back to the main mass. That is, she came back to herself. She realized the great truth, that there's no land in that direction either. And uh, the place to find happiness and refuge and contentment and safety and peace is within yourself, in your own heart and within your own self. In the Bhagavad Gita, second chapter, Sri Krishna discourses on the nature of the self. And uh, he spends the whole chapter in very high philosophy, describing the nature of the divine immortal soul, which is yourself, that is the Atman. And at the very end of the chapter, Sri Arjuna, who is his disciple, having uh, heard this high metaphysical discourse, asks him a very simple practical question. Arjuna says, yes, yes, sir, revered sir, you've been describing the nature of the, of the Atman, the soul, but I want to know what does a person who has realized the Atman, that is, he's called a sthita pragya, that means someone who is established in the Atman, who has realized the self, what does he look like? What does he, what does he do? I want to try to visualize him. He wanted something more visual, something more tangible than this high metaphysical kind of abstract philosophy. So at the very end, you can read there, the sthita pragyasya kabhasha samadhis tashyakeshava. He's asking him this question. How does he sit? He wants to know about the jnani, the person who has realized the self, forget about the philosophy. I want to know about this person. How does he sit? How does he walk? How does he talk? What does he say? What does he do? That's what he wants to know. Good question. Because we can very easily visualize a saint. You know, you got four ideals, okay? You got your saint, your sage, your mystic, and your hero. So you got your, so you, you can easily, we can visualize a saint. What does a saint do? Well, he sings and dances and sings the name of God and he's singing bhajans and tears are streaming down his eyes as he's thinking of the love of God. We can visualize that. And uh, we can visualize a karma yogi, that is a great heroic worker who's working tirelessly to make this world a better selfless service, making this world a better place to live. We can visualize that. 
That's a karma yogi. And uh, we can visualize a raja yogi also, great, on the great path of meditation. He's retired up high up in the Himalayas, living in a cave. He's sitting there cross-legged with his eyes closed. That's the raja yogi. But what does the jnani look like? What is the person who has realized the self, who has realized the Atman? What does he do? What does he look like? Well, if we read the lives of the saints, we find a very good exemplar of uh, self-contentment, of self-realization. In the life of the uh, saint of Tiruvannamalai, his name was Ramana Maharshi, kind of a contemporary jnani, passed away in 1950. And Ramana Maharshi, he realized from a very young age that he was uh, a divine immortal soul. He realized his true self. And after that realization, from then on, he lived as a person who was identified with his true self. And like Arjuna, we can ask, well then, okay, what did, what did he do? How can we visualize him? What do you do after enlightenment? Sometimes people say, okay, you realize that you're a divine immortal soul. What do you do? And, uh, well, look at Ramana Maharshi. He didn't withdraw from this world and retire into the Himalayas in some cave and disappear from society. He remained where, where, where he started, a small ashrama. And... Uh, he didn't go out and start working and helping and serving other people to trying to make this world a better place to live. Didn't do any social service. And uh, didn't build a church. He didn't write any books. He didn't sit down and write big books. And uh, you think back about none of these great, I mean, Buddha, he didn't write a book, no. Jesus write a book? No, he didn't write a book either. And... Uh, Lao Tzu, he didn't write a book. And uh, so similarly, Ramana Maharshi, he didn't, he didn't compose any songs. And what did he do? He just sat there and he smiled. And we see pictures of him. And uh, yes, he, in his daily routine, I mean, there is a momentum, right? That when the, I mean, there's, a, there's what's called prarabdha karma. In other words, by ha habit, they would ring the bell and he would get up and they'd go and they'd partake of the noon meal. And he would come back and he would rise and he would do his morning ablutions as he had habituated to do in, uh, for many years before. But other than those basic habits, that's called prarabdha karma. See, the, car, the chariot is going along, you, the wheel is, the wheel is, breaks off of the axle. What happens? The wheel just doesn't stop rolling. The wheel doesn't just fall on the ground. The wheel keeps rolling. The same direction as the chariot, right? See, that's the prarabdha karma. So similarly, he's, he's, he's doing things that he always did, the kind of routine things that he always did. He gets up in the morning, brushes his teeth, does his morning ablutions. But other than that, he just sits quietly and abides in the self. Well, you say, well, maybe what, what did he do all day? Well, did he watch television? No, didn't have any television there. Did he sit there listening to the radio? Do we see any pictures of him maybe with little earplugs in his, in his ear? Maybe he's listening to the, 
his playlist on a... No, not doing that. And, um, but uh, then you say, well, that's all? He just sat there and smiled. That's because self-knowledge is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. In this Vedanta philosophy, it's not about becoming something, doing something. Didn't he do some awesome thing? No, he didn't do anything. Why? Because this is not about becoming some kind of an awesome person. It's just about being. It's about being who you already are. And um, different saints have different missions and have different messages. It seems that the, Ram, the message and the kind of the mission of Ramana Maharshi was just to embody this ideal of self-contentment. And it says there in the um, Panjadashi, Atmanam Chedvijani Aramasmiti Purushaha Kimichan Kasya Kamaya Shariram Anusam Jorate. There it says the when you when the jnani realizes his true nature, what will he do? He has no desire. He has no wants. Why would he do anything to trouble himself? That's what this verse says. Why would he do anything to even bother to trouble himself? if he already has infinite joy and happiness within himself. And Nirshtavakra Samhita refers to this kind of a being, Jnani, as he sits there absorbed in bliss in the Ashtavakra Samhita, there refers to him as the master idler. There is a master idler there. He says there, there's a master idler to whom even the opening and closing of the eyes it's an affliction to him. It takes effort, right? Anything you do in life takes effort. Why do you make an effort? Because you want to make an effort. You have to have a motive. There's motive. If you're filled with infinite happiness and joy and peace, you have no motive. And therefore, it takes an effort to close. Your... That's why Sri Ramakrishna, at one time, he says, you know, gave instruction to his disciples, you know, sometimes, when I become absorbed in the self, I forget to breathe. He said, would you please remind me? You know, give me a little portion. I remember so that I can breathe. And so like that, they would remind him. And he would kind of fabricate desires, create little desires in order to keep his mind down on a lower plane. So that's the nature of the jnani. He just sits and, and he doesn't do anything. And he just abides in his own true self. And uh, maybe we find it a little bit hard, a little bit difficult to appreciate this ideal of the master idler and uh, the man who is perfectly desireless and abiding in the self. We find it difficult to get it. And uh, the old Zen Buddhist, uh, uh, there were some people who were they, they're working in the fields there. Peasants and villagers working in the fields, and they were cultivating tea in the field. And there, as they worked on the tea plants, they look up on the hill, way up on the hill, they saw a man up there. And a man, what's he doing? He's standing way up on this hill. And they continued working and cultivating their tea plants. Time passed, they looked up there again. There he was, still there, standing in the same place. Wasn't moving. They started, what's he doing up there? And they began to talk. Finally, curiosity got the best. A couple, couple of them said, we've got to find out about this. 
So they wended their way up the trail, up to the up the hill, and uh, there they saw came up to the came up to the man. Sure enough, there he was standing there. And the villagers they came over to the sir. He said, "Hello." He said, uh, "Are you looking for somebody?" The man said, "No." Uh, are you lost? No. Did you come up here to, to, to breathing the fresh, clean mountain air? No, not really. It's not all why I'm here. So, well, then they asked, well, what are you doing here? He said, I'm just standing. And uh, that's the end of the story. <laughs> that's the old Zen, Zen Buddhist story. You see, we can't understand that. Because our, our natural thing is, don't just stand there, do something. You know, do something. And uh, America is the land of action. We know all about action and about achievement and about progress and about making things happen, about creating awesome things in the universe. And uh, we condemn inaction as kind of unproductive and as unuseful. And, uh, but saints and sages of the East, they have quite a different attitude, quite a different perspective. Their perspective is don't just, you know, sometimes you've heard that the phrase there, the rat race. You ever hear that phrase? I tried once to explain that to some students in India. They asked me, yeah, they're trying to learn English, you know, what's the rat race? The rat race, well, we can't conceive of what we mean by a rat race. But that's the, the whole idea is that um, don't just participate in the race, rather stand aside. And uh, this is maybe the lesson that we can learn from the wisdom of the East, that America is the land of action. We value action and achievement. But there's a lot to be said also on the other side of the coin. You know, this Vedanta philosophy, we believe in the meeting of East and West, and that we learn, each learns from the other. But we also, so we should also learn that there is something to be said for pure quietism. And uh, there's an old uh, Buddhist haiku poem. Haiku, you know, is the poem, the structure, the structure, three lines. And uh, if you don't like to read long poetry, maybe you can just read some haiku. Here's a haiku poem from the kind of that expresses this teaching. Sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. That's kind of, that's quietism. That's, that's self-knowledge. That's self-realization. He just, the jnani just sits there. He's filled with joy and happiness and peace. He opens his eyes and he sees spring comes. The grass grows by, he doesn't have to do anything. Someone once asked a swami of our order, some old swami, his name is Tyagishananda, somebody, he's, that time he, he was, uh, he grew a beard growing a beard, a little unusual. So one of the monks asked him, he says, Swami, why are you growing that beard? And he, Swami just looked at it just grows. <laughs> I'm, not do, I'm not doing anything. It just grows by itself. And so uh, there's a PBS special. It was called The Long Search, where it talked about all the different religions of the world. 
And uh, in that uh, PBS search, you go into uh, one of the segments, episodes, you go into a Buddhist monastery, and there it's in a, they go into a meditation, a Zendo hall, and there's the Zen master, he's seated there quietly. And it's just a study in minimalism. There's no furniture or nothing. There's just a few tatami mats there, and he's sitting there. And he's, so that they're, Bill Moyers, he's interviewing. They're interviewing the Zen master. And it's very peaceful, very quiet. But the Zen master, he quotes uh, a French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. And I always remember that quotation from Blaise Pascal. Uh, the sole cause of all human misery this is Blaise Pascal. This is a French philosopher. This is not the Zen man. This is the French philosopher. The sole cause of all human misery is the inability of people to sit quietly in their rooms. <laughs> so that's the message this morning. I had one more story. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to conclude here by saying I did not give you a step-by-step -step instruction on how to practice contentment. Rather, this morning we concentrated and focused on kind of clarifying in our minds what is the ideal. And uh, it's important for us to be able to visualize this ideal. And this is the goal of jnana yoga, to abide in your true self. Om Dyo Ushantihi Antariksha Amshantihi Pritivi Shantihi Apa Shantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantirehi Om Shantihi, Shantihi, Shantihi. Om, peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.